Welcome to another episode of Public Problems. In this episode, I have a conversation with Emily Sellers on immigration. Uh, we follow along with some of her work on immigration and the consequences to both the country from which people are immigrating and some of the impacts on the country that people are immigrating to, what causes these patterns to change, um, and how different countries respond with different types of policies um, to manage immigration. And Emily does a nice job of pointing out some of the concerns with out-migration and in-migration. And I think this can be very informative for our own debate here in the U.S. about structuring sensible immigration policies. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and thanks for following along. Welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. Today I'm with Emily Sellers. Emily is an assistant professor at the Bush School of Government at Texas A&M University, where I also work. We will be discussing her dissertation, Essays on Immigration and Politics, which recently received the American Political Science Association's Manker Olson Award for the Best Dissertation in Political Economy, uh, defended in the previous two years. She is particularly interested in understanding the political dynamics of immigration and the different tools used by governments to create and manage immigration policy. She also has an interesting theory on the relationship between immigration opportunities and collective action that we'll talk about a little later on. Emily's also a colleague and a friend, and I'm so happy that she has agreed to chat on the topic of immigration and politics. So thank you, Emily. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Great. Of course. So here's what I want to try to accomplish in this talk. Um, I want to start with a 10,000 foot view of what immigration is, sort of lay out some of the basic terms and concepts um, for the listeners. And then I want to talk about what we know is politically related to immigration. So in other words, what things influence immigration patterns and what are some of the consequences for the country experiencing either the influx of people coming into the country or outflux of people leaving? Um, and then I want to talk about some of your work on immigration patterns and consequences for the country of Mexico specifically, which is where your work focuses. And finally, I want to take all of these pieces and then talk a little bit about U.S. immigration and immigration policy and what all of this information we're going to talk about means for U.S. immigration policy. How does that sound? That sounds perfect. Thank you. Uh, let's, let's do it. Let's jump right in. Okay. <laughs> so let's start with the 10,000-foot view. So if you could... Um, Let's start with getting some terms right. So explain to me the differences. As I was getting ready for this interview, I sort of re-tried to get my head back around these terms, which I think can be confusing and a little intimidating to people. And so some of the ones that I pulled out that I thought could be useful were uh, immigration with an I, immigration with an E, foreign-born, naturalized. We talk about refugees sort of in this broad category. Uh, diaspora communities is one as well. Um, so maybe walk me through what those terms mean before we begin. Absolutely. Um, that sounds like a great idea. So uh, we have a bunch of different terms we use for describing the movement of people across borders. Um, so migration is sort of a generic term. It's just moving, people moving in general, really. Um, and emigration uh, with an E is usually uh, the direction where people leave from a place and go to another place. It's like immigrating from. From. Is usually with the Exactly. Like emigration is uh, leaving and immigration is usually coming somewhere. Um, of course, these are different terms used to describe the same movement of people. So something that's in, uh, a movement of emigration from someplace like Mexico or the Philippines is a movement of immigration sometimes from 
the perspective of someone living in the United States or uh, Saudi Arabia or places that uh, accept a lot of immigrants. Um, so, so another big term that I think is used a lot, um, especially in the press that I wanted to clarify a little bit is this distinction that's drawn between refugees and what's sometimes called economic migrants. Okay. Um, and so refugees, uh, are, uh, it's actually a political, uh, sort of legal term. Um, so people who are, um, you know, uh, unable to return to their country because, um, they're, uh, fear, of, they have fear of being pros- uh, persecuted for a member in some sort of social class, uh, race, religion, nationality, and so on. Um, economic migrants is usually what's referred to, you know, as, as the group of people that doesn't fall into that category. Um, in practice, of course, these lines are really blurred. So um, the United States right now, we're kind of struggling with how to, to treat Central American migrants who might be fleeing drug violence. And is that sort of fleeing a political um, actor? Is that a member of a social group or so on? Um, so that's sort of something that's also confusing a little bit, I think, in, in the way people in the press talk about um, migration. Not so necessarily these things, mutually but. exclusive, right? You're Not at all. You're fleeing for political reasons, but the fact that you're having to plead for, for political reasons probably informs whether you were had access to a good job or economic yeah, opportunities. That's absolutely right. And so, um, you know, these things are actually really hard to disentangle in, in, in practice. And in fact, the U.S. in some cases, you know, uh, even has sort of another category, which is, you know, um, certain nations are given uh, what's called temporary protective status in the U.S. Um, because um, it's thought that it would be sort of dangerous for people to return to a country um, because of um, either a natural disaster or unrest going on there, um, which again sort of muddies the waters a little bit too. In practice, of course, these are all sort of ideal types. Most things are shades of gray. So that's sort of all discussing sort of different types of people. Another big category um, which you brought up is foreign-born population. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's usually sort of just at a snapshot in time, we can look at the United States and say how many people in the United States were born in a different country. Um, so in um, economics, we usually differentiate between sort of stocks and flows. So immigration, emigration is often about flows, movement of people across the border. Foreign-born population is usually about a stock. So at census in 2010, how many people in the state of Georgia, or the state of Texas, or the state of Massachusetts live uh, were born who live there now were born outside the country? And so stock just means the number of them, not necessarily the patterns or the flows. It's not but... the movement, just at some time, how many people are there exactly. Um, and then sort of this last category, you bring up naturalized uh, citizens or the naturalized population. Those are people who were um, maybe born uh, outside the country or born with a different citizenship in any case um, and uh, uh, now are becoming U.S. citizens. So once you go through the naturalization process, you're a U.S. citizen. Um, you know, you're a naturalized citizen. Um, so you're actually a full, um, given sort of full rights and responsibilities of a citizen of the United States. And how about diaspora? What is what is that one? Yeah, so that's sort of an interesting uh, term, which is often um, sort of uh, loosely means sort of a group. Uh, so some of these categories refer to a person or, you know, um, small group people. Usually um, diaspora communities are talking about bigger groups that live outside um, a country of origin. Often this term is somewhat politicized. So we think about Diaspora groups um, from Cuba after the revolution, uh, living in, in Miami or the Armenian diaspora in um, the United States or so on. That's something about um, that group is also politically constituted. Um, but again, these terms all sort of bleed into each other in a, in a um, fundamental way. So um, which sort of adds to the confusion. I think that, um, you know, the if there's any iron rule of studying migration, it's that all of these things um, are sort of shades of gray rather than black and white. Which, as you mentioned, has to muddy the debate and the policy discussions when, the, when just the basic terms can be confusing. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for clearing that up. So I think um, that sort of gives a base kind of language concept for thinking about some of the immigration things. But um, what is it that 
sort of fuels the immigration concerns, I suppose. So when people think about immigration, I think broadly, uh, in general, they're concerned about things like what are the economic consequences or what does that do to, say, population size, if a population needs to be growing or um, what does that do to the to both groups sort of health outcomes or quality of life? I mean, is it that immigrants are usually helping or hurting the 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 natives uh, quality of, of life. And so I know these there at least some of these are addressed in the immigration debates sort of in the US. So what is it sort of uh, what are the different concepts that people study when studying about immigration and its consequences and its impacts? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think uh, the interesting thing about immigration and emigration or sort of migration in general is that it shapes um, the composition and size of people in society and therefore affects almost everything, um, which is why it's such a controversial and I think heated topic in the United States and actually in many other countries. Um, and incidentally, and I'll talk about this later, it's a sort of heated topic of places that, that send away migrants too. So it's sort of, um, you know, one of the reasons for that is uh, that, um, of course, um, when you have an influx of people in society, it's going to affect the economy. It's going to affect wages. It doesn't always hurt wages, actually. I mean, there's actually some mixed uh, research on this showing that in some cases can actually encourage, for example, businesses to, to invest in certain areas and so forth that have an influx of people. But it certainly changes the economy. It certainly changes um, things like um, infrastructure use and um, investment. Uh, think about sort of a massive sudden influx of people will change how many people have to go to school in a certain school district or how many people use a certain road. And of course that has spillover consequences on everyone who's living there. Um, uh, health um, and cer- certainly has certain um, implications for health, um, both among migrants themselves, among their broader families, where they live um, uh, uh, in terms of, especially, you know, thinking about you know, a classic example would be people who are obviously fleeing from an unhealthy situation can have health improvements, obviously from, uh, or uh, coming to, uh, a more healthy area, but there are also um, impacts on things like use of the public health system, which is going to have spillover effects on on society too. Um, and all of these things affect quality of life. Um, and it's also incidentally something that you know people who are uh, you know places where people are leaving from also um, have a lot of these debates in part related to you know the effects of le- people leaving itself exit on things like the economy, schools, roads, and so on but also on the importance of sort of this remittances that people send back from people in the U.S. and whether that could be um, reinvested into the economy and into um, the um, sort of social uh, spending in in a given uh, community. So um, I think one of the reasons why it's so controversial is because of these um, many effects that that sort of population movement can have that that um, sort of may hurt or help different people at different times. So it's like healthcare, for example, becomes very politicized because it impacts everyone. And so immigration is, is the same kind of way. Yeah, so even if you don't, you are an immigrant yourself, even if your community doesn't have that many immigrants in it, there's sort of all sorts of spillover effects that, that engenders in society, and likewise for the places people leave from. So are these things different? And I don't want to get too much into the <laughs> empirical analysis just sure. yet, yeah. but it, it dawns me as we're talking about this that sure. one of the there are other terms that I think get thrown around in the U.S. debate. Mm-hmm. So you hear people talk about uh, illegal immigration or uh-huh. people being illegal. Yes. You hear uh, sometimes the term undocumented. Yep. Um, and then as I was doing some reading through some of the links you sent me getting prepared for this, I came across another term. Anyways, I can't remember what it was yeah. right now, but there was another term. So it, 
tell me just a little bit about those terms because I think yeah, this is going to segue into how really governments manage absolutely. migration. And then one thing is uh, maybe say a little bit about um, do these different statuses of people from a mm -hmm. legal standpoint, mm -hmm. um, are they differently related to some of these economic concerns and quality of life and population yeah. size? Because it, it seems to me, and this is what the argument that I think people make, uh -huh. is that um, uh, undocumented or uh, uh, immigrants who are here uh, with an illegal status of some sort um, affect the economy and affect the population and affect infrastructure differently than immigrants that go through sort of a typical legal status that is set by the, the government. So maybe tell me a little bit about, about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, um, that is a really important uh, point, especially because a lot of these terms, again, get hyper-politicized and um, stretched to the point where they don't mean anything. So I guess classically, we can think about um, legal immigration as being um, uh, immigration that goes through uh, you know, a procedure where people have some sort of formalized uh, authorization to be in the United States, um, whereas um, classically, again, um, illegal immigration or um, something's called undocumented immigration is people that don't have that. Um, I think that in practice, these terms, uh, these things are a lot more um, are a lot less clear on the ground than you'd think. Uh, in particular, think of a good example of somebody who comes to the United States on a student visa um, uh, to study or maybe get a PhD in the US and then overstays that student visa by two months. That person goes from, you know, on the end of their visa being an legal to an illegal immigrant virtually overnight without any difference in who that person is, what they're doing and so forth. Um, so it doesn't immediately affect in that way, not so, immediately affect some things. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of, um, you know, there are a lot of people who come to the U.S. legally and become uh, and become undocumented immigrants or legal immigrants because of how long they stay or overstaying a visa or, um, you know, things maybe working when they don't have work permit, work authorization. So like certain people are not permitted to work while they're in the United States. All of these things sort of get lumped into this broad category. Um, sort of the other thing, too, is going back to this issue of sort of temporary protected status. You know, sometimes um, different waves of uh, immigrants even coming from the same country, the same context, even fleeing the same uh, violence in some cases. Some years they are given some sort of authorization to be here and some years they're not. Um, and so uh, in practice, again, this is sort of something that has changed a lot over time. Uh, speaking of Mexican immigration in particular, there's a lot of people with various levels of um, you know, about 11 million Mexicans, a little over that, living in the United States right now. Um, there's sort of a broad swath of different uh, people think of that as being kind of the classic illegal immigration, which um, many, some of it is, and much of it is sort of this undocumented migration. But a lot of families are mixed status families, which means that some people have either they're sort of naturalized citizens or have um, permanent residency. Um, some people are U.S. born citizens. Um, if there are children who are born here. Um, some have. Uh, at least as of now, um, DACA, the sort of uh, authorization, work authorization through that, which doesn't mean they're not undocumented, but it gives them some sort of authorization for being here. So there are almost as many uh, sort of constellations of uh, legality or illegality or whatever, um, as you might think um, possible in, in some of these immigrant families. So um, my work and, you know, um, so on looks mostly at the country of origin, but I think in the United States too, like thinking about the consequences of this um, you know, certainly people who don't have legal status, you know, or so-called undocumented immigrants don't have access to certain types of jobs or resources, which has an effect on, um, on um, health, economy, everything you might imagine. So if you're somebody coming from 
uh, country where um, maybe you even had a somewhat um, educated or somewhat sort of high set, highish status job in your country, but you can't uh, access those jobs in the U.S. because you don't you don't have um, uh, work authorization. That's going to impact um, both the jobs you're likely to um, to get, and also therefore the economic consequences of migration. Um, and so uh, one of the challenges I think that the U.S. faces is this sort of uh, sizable population of people that don't have um, a sort of a clear uh, legal status right now, um, or they you know don't have a um, sort of authorization to be here, um, but still are you know are you know our neighbors and and, and live um, uh, in our same communities, and so. Um, it affects how, you know, the extent to which they're willing to, say, call the police if they see um, law enforcement officials acting mm-hmm. a certain way. It affects um, whether they're going to go uh, see a doctor if people are sick. So these things all have spillover effects on um, on society, of course. Yeah, the um, well, I want to want to get back to the U.S. Yeah. context. Uh, I've had some interesting recent exposure to that with expanding my own family. I mm. was recently married and... Uh, yeah married uh, Mia Guzman, who is a Mexican immigrant. Um, and I've learned a lot about all the nuances in my mind before this experience and even being relatively educated in policy, I wasn't aware of the muddying mm-hmm. and the complexities of the different types of legal statuses and Absolutely. how uh, what those look like and the ways in which those are intermingled in one family mm-hmm. and how that can create uncertainty and mm-hmm all sorts of of challenges. And so I want to get back to uh, eventually what that means for U.S. policy, immigration, and what might be better or make Mm -hmm. more sense than that. Um, But uh, related to that, but more broadly, um, what are the different tools that governments use to manage immigration policies? I mean, the only thing I know intimately now is the U.S. and Mexican relationships with immigration. Mm-hmm. And even some of that gets a little complex trying to follow along. Uh, but what are the different types of approaches that governments broadly use? I mean, does it range all the way in the world from completely open borders that sometimes get sort of mentioned or completely closed borders? Is it a lot in between? What types of how uh, how um, what is the process by which governments use to expel people? Mm-hmm. Is that something most countries do if people yeah. are there with, uh, without e- either illegal or with an undocumented status? I mean, what, what's sort of the range of options out there? Yeah, the range of options is um, is uh, pretty pretty limitless almost. I mean, I think you do see in practice um, some countries that have uh, notoriously extremely closed borders uh, to, to either in-migration uh, or out-migration. Um, uh, you know, classically under the um, sort of Soviet rule, that was sort of the classic case in, in Eastern Europe, but also places like North Korea, people aren't necessarily allowed to leave even if they choose to. Um, uh, you know, uh, conversely, you see, I think, in, um, in uh, some parts of Europe, you know, the Schengen area, once you're inside the Schengen zone, there's actually a lot of freedom to move across borders um, if you're a person who's already in the area. So um, certainly in terms of uh, the amount of people moving across borders or the, you know, rather the, the policy uh, arrangements they have to allow for people moving across borders, it ranges a lot. Um, but also countries have done, you know, a ton of things to ch- sort of change the size and composition of flows in various ways that aren't really about border security per se, but they're about um, uh, sort of negotiating for um, certain types of workers to come to the United States or to, you know, any other sort of um, receiving um, migrant receiving country, uh, you know, for example, uh, in uh, looking at uh, Mexico-U.S. Uh, context only, there have been a lot of different 
sort of regulatory frameworks that have allowed for or not allowed for migration um, across the border. So, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, there was actually a temporary labor program uh, or series of temporary labor agreements, really, um, that allowed for people to come to the U.S. temporarily to work um, in fields and, and so on and go back, you know, every year. But they were given, you know, sort of uh, permission to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, some countries in the world, you know, the Philippines is a really notable example, even sort of negotiate bilateral treaties with countries to send certain types of people there for some fixed period of time. Um, beyond these sort of explicit programs, there's a lot of things that countries do with arranging for different types of visas or different balance of different types of visas. You know, um, you can uh, encourage different types of people to come to the, to the country or to leave a country um, by, for example, changing the balance of family reunification visas, which are going to help people who are family members of Americans or permanent residents come across versus uh, visas that are more geared toward people with certain skill sets toward, uh, as opposed to visas that are geared toward or, uh, you know, sort of uh, other sort of um, migration policies that are geared toward tourists versus refugees and so on. So all of these things and it's sort of very complex um, policy environment, all these things shape the composition of flows, um, uh, shape, uh, you know, uh, who comes into the United States, who leaves um, different countries, those all sorts of, those, those are all things that governments uh, very much do work to change. Um, thinking of emigration, you know, we think usually that the policy um, barriers to migration are usually for the receiving countries, the countries that people are going to try to go to. But there are a lot of countries that have barriers toward emigration of various sorts, you know, whether it's a high passport costs or exit visa. Some countries require you to buy an exit visa. Um, some countries make it very difficult to leave for various other reasons. So um, all of those things uh, can shape who goes where and therefore the social, political and economic consequences. One thing you mentioned that I think is maybe useful to highlight is sometimes immigration policies are about border security uh-huh. and sometimes they're about other things. Sure. And so border security, I think one is particularly salient in the U.S. right now as part of the debate. Mm-hmm. but. Uh, it's not the only arena we should care about when it comes to consequences for immigration. And so the others might be economics. What what other things might we need to be considering when we think about intelligent, rational immigration policy and, and border security clearly being one of them. Sure. Uh, but what are some of the others that governments kind of or policy actors take into account when trying to design good immigration policy? I think there's a balance of things. I mean, different, I mean, some of it also depends on people have different interests in different, um, in, in shaping flows in different ways. But, you know, one thing people think about is, you know, uh, what the, maybe the economy might need certain types of workers or might be, have a shortage of certain types of workers. And certainly there are mechanisms for changing, um, you know, some countries, for example, have point systems to try to um, make it easier for certain types of workers to, to migrate. Um, you know, one other thing that people care about a lot is, you know, uh, family reunification, um, which, of course, changes the composition of flows, perhaps toward, you know, uh, oftentimes toward children, dependents and so on, uh, maybe less economically uh, helpful in some cases. But socially, I think people um, have shown a preference for this sort of migration. Um, the other thing, of course, is, you know, refugee movement. A lot of times there's a lot of um, sort of social demand, especially when you have um, sort of uh, large-scale humanitarian crises for allowing migration um, to sort of uh, allow people to, to get out of these um, situations. So um, there are a ton of reasons that people might want to change the, the uh, composition of who comes, the size of how many people come. Um, and uh, I think different interest groups in the United States only, I think there are a million different interest groups who have 
different visions for what that should look like, um, which is why I think this is, again, a debate that gets a lot of press and a lot of um, sort of emotional uh, outbursts and, mm-hmm. and so on about it. It seems like a lot of it is an expression of, of just values, right? I mean, part of it is trying to understand the economic consequences. Mm-hmm. Part of it's trying to understand what it will do to sort of um, population. You know, for example, like the U.S. Uh, has uh, has a need for population growth to support pensions, uh, social insurance programs of elderly. And so part of it might be trying to find a way to increase the population size to meet, say, obligations, whereas another piece of it might be concerns about border security and keeping out bad actors from doing uh, criminal activity in the U.S. So it seems like there can be a lot of different pieces that you could latch on that you would care about that would be sort of internally consistent as at least one piece of it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that, you know, the other thing to, to keep in mind is that something that is a benefit for one group of people in the United States might harm another group of people in the United States, Mm -hmm. which is also why I think this is a really um, controversial topic. So, um, or at least, you know, even if it doesn't even harm, but perceives to harm people, I think that's a big issue. Um, And so just like any other economic or social phenomenon, I think some people win and some people lose. And so I think that that's why, um, that's one of the reasons why I think um, uh, it's uh, captured a lot of people's Attention. I do think that one of the problems also with the immigration debate in the U.S. is that people don't necessarily know some of the basic facts that we've been talking about today about sort of what's known about, for example, the impact of immigration on wages, uh, what's known about um, the um, composition of refugees coming to the United States, and in particular, you know, whether or not, um, you know, sort of what's the process through which they come. Um, and so um, all of those things, I think, um, get muddied in the way they're covered, which makes it harder for people to even have an informed debate about some of these things. So uh, I want to let you on to maybe one of those, if that's okay. Sure. What is the evidence on uh, immigration into a country having on wages of people in that country? I mean, is there a, is there a universally accepted outcome? Does it vary by context? What, what does happen when the U.S. absorbs, say, a lot of Mexican immigrants what does that do to the wages of the people already present or already living in the United States, for example? Um, yeah, so this sort of goes beyond the scope of my own research, but I can tell you that sort of summarizing the debate, um, no, there's not sort of like a clear answer. I think that um, certainly what's clear is that it's not merely a case of, um, there's some evidence that it's not merely, I think, the Econ 101 argument that's going to unambiguously lower wages because you're going to have more market competition for, for labor. Um, I think that in some cases people invest in an area because there are immigrants living there because there are various things that you know makes um, uh, labor costs uh, maybe uh, uh, more or makes the uh, the availability of labor even uh, more attractive, which may eventually feed back and actually raise um, uh, wages in some cases. Um, certainly, I think the one thing um, you know there's a bunch of sort of debates back and forth in in the economics literature on whether or not it's going to lower wages or raise wages on average. But I think one thing we can be certain of is that it's almost certainly at least dependent on some uh, somewhat in the context. Um, so thinking about um, a large scale inflow of a single type of worker has a different effect than a, um, a slower um, influx of different types of workers. Um, the place where they're going, certainly the the receiving context matters a lot in terms of, um, you know, other industries that are around, agriculture, resources, and so forth. So I think um, if there's anything we can be sure of, it's almost certainly um, it's going to depend on the context. On, which I think makes sense, uh, mm-hmm. at least as I'm sitting here thinking about it, that um, 
it would depend on the industry. They would have different impact in say higher education like we're in, people coming in with PhDs and want to find opportunities to work in higher education in the U.S. versus um, agricultural uh, labor or sort of traditional manual labor. And I imagine those have um, uh, different impacts. Absolutely. And I think one thing people also forget, which, um, you know, is that, you know, maybe there's sort of one initial effect, but there are therefore lots of sort of um, responses. People respond to things. So, mm-hmm. for example, a short run influx of people may have maybe temporarily, may temporarily lower wages, but then it's going to, um, people are going to adjust. So it's going to change how firms invest in the economy. It's going to change the composition of uh, the workforce, which is going to change who else might get a job in in the in the economy. Um, uh, people may have chain migration. This is very common, for example, in Mexico. People maybe um, originally arrive in one location and then leave to go to other places. Um, you know, once they're in the United States for various reasons. Um, so all of these things sort of have uh, complex effects that I think sometimes make it hard to assess what the overall effect on wages is. Um, and, and and furthermore, I mean. Talking about wages as sort of just one thing is, of course, kind of misleading too, because something that lowers manufacturing wages, say, or agricultural wages, may raise service wages or so on. Um, because you know, if people come to an economy, not only are they providing more labor, but they're also buying things locally. Um, mm-hmm. They're um, going to the barber or they're going to the grocery store, and so those can have positive spillover effects too. So. Um, I think one thing that gets a little bit lost in the debate is some of those, it's, it's actually somewhat of a complicated story. I mean, that's not even considering some of the sort of public finance implications of, you know, uh, uh, contrary to popular belief, you know, many uh, immigrants, most immigrants do pay some taxes of some kind. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that has consequences. And they often use things like schools, uh, you know, roads and so forth that, um, of course, are paid for with tax money. So these are all, again, very complicated things that um, it makes it hard to uh, immediately assess, or, or I think it's hard to even characterize, uh, you know, the overall effect because these things kind of cu- cut in opposite directions. So it, it, one thing that we can probably say then is that it doesn't unambiguously or it doesn't automatically lower wages across the board or it doesn't automatically raise wages across the board. It can be, yeah, across the, de- I think, yeah. Exactly. It depends on the context and the secondary and, ter- and, and, and third tertiary effects, right? Yeah, I think that all of those things, in terms of how it's going to overall affect what we care about in the end is usually welfare, how, you know, how people are um, doing in society. And I think that that, um, you know, all those things are going to um, be um, uh, important to assess when thinking about that overall effect. Okay, I want to shift to understanding um, what causes inflows and outflows, mm-hmm. what types of things are push people away from a country or draw them to a country. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I think it would be interesting to talk about then what are, we're talking a little bit about some of the some of the consequences, one being wages and that being sort of ambiguous, mm-hmm. but maybe what, what are some other known consequences to local communities of, or even sort of federal governments or centralized governments of, great inflow or outflow. So maybe tell me a little bit about what causes inflows and outflows, what makes a country either appealing or not appealing, and choices of exit, which is something mm-hmm. you talk about in your uh, in your work, and then what that means for the, either the country receiving or losing those people. Sure. So, um, so I think there are a lot of different reasons why people might choose to, I'll start with leaving a country and then we'll go to, to sort of choice of where to go. 
Um, you know, I think that uh, people leave for a lot of reasons. I think people leave certainly um, the classic examples of people leaving from bad situations like um, conflict, um, feelings of insecurity and so forth. That certainly exists. Um, people leaving because they don't feel like they have any economic opportunity. I think that certainly exists. Um, I think some migrants leave because um, I think they just want to do something different. Uh, I think that certainly not, um, you know, maybe it's not really about direct grievance. Um, think about people moving between different states in the United States. I think it's kind of a similar story where sometimes people move because they have a job they want to take or there's an opportunity they want to take advantage of or they need a change of, of scenery. Um, it's a much lower level, but I think some of that exists also at the, at the level of international migration. Um, so, um, and sometimes I think people leave for a bunch of different reasons, which is one of the reasons why I think it's really hard sometimes to disentangle sort of this refugee versus economic migrant distinction, which gets um, emphasized a lot as sort of difficult in practice to, to think about because I think some people um, are leaving for a bunch of, you know, several reasons. Um, and, and so it's hard to assess how much of that is political, how much of that is sort of fear of being persecuted versus how much of it is sort of just a desire to take advantage of an opportunity or desire to have your children take advantage of an opportunity. In terms of where people go, I think there's a lot of things too. I think that certainly the economic and political context matters for the receiving country, something like um, in the United States, you know, we see people, um, you know, one good example is there is a sort of a uh, rapid decline in um, the amount of Mexicans coming to the United States right after the financial crisis, right? Because suddenly it wasn't as attractive an environment to to want to um, you know pay to to travel to or to to um, pay to uh, live in. Uh, political context, I think, also matters. If you think that you're going to have a really difficult time integrating, or you think that you're going to have um, a really difficult time living in a place, that's going to affect whether or not you're willing to move there. Um, and I think finally, um, you know, I think one thing that's talked a lot about a lot in the migration literature is sort of these network effects. So, um, you know, for example, you know, here, Bryan College Station, where we live, uh, there is a, a really sizable immigrant community from, you know, uh, uh, certain places in Mexico or certain places in Honduras. Um, and the reason they're here in Bryan uh, or in College Station is because uh, they um, knew someone who knew someone who was there and then eventually um, that helps you find a job. It helps you find a place to live. And so when you hear about it, when you're still back in your home country, that's going to make you want to move to a certain place too. Um, so all of these things, I think, um, are, are um, really important for thinking about who goes and, and why. So it sounds like to me that there are a couple different types that could be categorized as economic concerns mm -hmm. and general op opportunity or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. And political, political concerns, the desirability of living in a place, are you safe, are you secure, do you have, uh, uh, um, do you have rights, do you have mm -hmm. access to things, and then there's sort of a cultural piece or a personal yeah. piece yeah. where things like, you know, you like the climate, or you mm -hmm. like the community, and yeah. you like the way the people treat you, or to your point, network effects. I. Um, I, again, was first sort of exposed to this um, with my extended family, mm -hmm. is that Fort Worth just was a place, which is where, where she's from, that people from that region of Mexico went. And you knew yeah. that there were some people there, and it was sort of like known in the community that if you were going to try to make a move to the U.S., that this was a place where other people, an extended family or family mm -hmm. friends were. So that was my first exposure to that, which makes complete sense. I mean, yeah. we're social characters in general, and so having those networks there also helps 
buttress against some of the concerns about getting adjusted in that new country sure, yeah. and economic insecurity Absolutely. and those types of things. So um, uh, that makes sense to me on the uh, on the why people move to either from or to a certain mm-hmm. place. What are some of the consequences of having an inflow of immigration to your country or uh, an outflow? I know they can. It certainly varies by context, but what are some of the general themes? Sure. And people think about, I mean, I guess, you know, economic, direct economic effects. There's many people talk about, which you've already kind of discussed a little bit with regard to wages. But again, for everything we talk about in the U.S., you know, one thing that I, you know, my sort of focus, my research is, you know, for all these things we talk about in the United States context, there's sort of a countervailing effect for the places people are leaving from. So um, it it has an effect on wages on both sides. People are leaving um, uh, one context to go to another. Um, I think there are still have social consequences in terms of um, especially uh, some of these families that have uh, family members on both sides of the border that become difficult to see each other. I think that there are a lot of spillover effects on uh, family life and so on that are important. Um, and then um, I think there are a lot of um, sort of political effects of this as well. I think that it changes, um, you know, I think one immediate thing that happens, I mean, some countries allow you to vote abroad and so on, but it's a transfer of people in some cases from a place where they can vote to a place where they can't vote, and that has political consequences. Um, it also changes people's preferences in uh, the receiving country and the sending country over different types of economic policies and political policies, which of course is going to change politics as well. So um, it's a complex process. I think I'm not even sort of doing justice to some of the other sort of cultural and um, uh, sort of social things that are passed back and forth across countries. We tend to think of things as being sort of unidirectional flows of people, but of course, if people come to one context, they're often sending back money um, to where they left from, but also knowledge, um, information, uh, preferences, and so on. So all of these things are going to eventually feed back into the political process. And it's actually really complex, but um, you know, very interesting sort of thing to, to study, I think. And it seems to me that in the U.S. context that... Uh, an inflow of Mexican immigrants, for example, mm-hmm. um, has had some real political co- consequences or uh, impacts on the political sphere. It seems like that some traditional kind of um, uh, in-group, out-group things kick in, which happens in general across racial groups, I think, mm-hmm. within a diverse society. And so it triggers some some politics there. One of the things that I've noticed as this issue of immigration becomes more salient, and it has been for a long time, I think it's particularly salient to a lot of people now, is the the politics around it are very um, identity-based. Mm-hmm. They're very sort of, this is my group and this other group that we're unsure about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so without talking specifically about sure. whether or not that's happening in the U.S., is that common? I mean, are the do you know if... What uh, are some of the common political outcomes? Does it turn uh, sort of into identity politics where I like the group that the major group wants to kind of protect its political power or is um, a little uncertain about the new group uh, moving into there for sometimes good reasons and sometimes maybe not good reasons? Does I feel like that's playing out in the U.S. right now, but is there? do you know of how that's played out in other countries that were, say, more homogenous and then have inflows of groups from different sort of races, not just from different sure. regions. Yeah, I and mean, I think that um, 
uh, I personally think it's really hard to disentangle identity and questions of identity from any of these questions we've talked about so far. And I certainly also think that it's hard to disentangle like economics and politics from issues of identity either. Um, so I do think it's sort of a really, um, I, I think that is one of the reasons why this becomes such a controversial issue. Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting about just the United States context, not even talking about other contexts, is how different definitions of in-groups and out-groups have changed over time with respect to immigration in particular. Um, so I do a lot of historical research, and one thing that's sort of interesting is, you know, one of the reasons why Mexico-U.S. migration sort of accelerated in, in the late 19th and early 20th century was in part to replace um, uh, Asian migration, the Chinese, uh, you know, following the Chinese Exclusion Acts and so on, um, uh, that was sort of thought of as being more alien than um, the Christian American, you know, in the sense of uh, the American of, of the same continent migration from Mexico. So there's all this sort of propaganda around the time of this time period where Mexicans were considered the, the in-group in some sense. I mean, not... They're like the not desirable white, immigrants. Not white, um, not, you know, not white Americans, um, but also, you know, not... Uh, this sort of other foreign, um, you know, less foreign, let's say, um, than than um, some of the other groups. Um, likewise, I think you can look at the evolution of immigration to the U.S. from places like Southern Europe, you know, Italy, um, Greece, um, places from Catholic countries. I think that's a big thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Poland, uh, different time periods. Those weren't necessarily considered totally white either. Um, uh, and, or at least they were considered somewhat of an outgroup. Um, and maybe there were, you know, questions about whether or not these particularly Catholic immigrants to be able to um, acculturate into the Protestant United States. So I think that those sorts of distinctions have kind of disappeared over time for various reasons, you know, whether it's because, you know, we don't really have sort of huge waves of migration from Italy, say, anymore. Um, but um, but some of that has also been sort of, a, it illustrates how much some of this has been a moving target um, and, and sort of how some of these distinctions are really socially constructed and evolve over time um, in particular ways. I think that's a nice transition to some of your work. Uh, we were talking about the Mexico context, uh, and in respect of your time, uh, we'll keep moving forward. Sure, yeah. I think we've actually been going at it now for about 40 minutes. Oh, so wow. <laughs> um, uh, let's just jump straight to your work. So you have three working papers from your dissertation, uh, yeah. I believe, yeah. that uh, I had a chance to review, which was kind of fun for me. <laughs> I've said in a couple of these, I um, it's surprising at least to me, I don't read my colleagues' work in mm -hmm. general. I just sort of know you do immigration and then I move on, right? right. And so it was, it was really fun to, to <laughs> read through your dissertation. And I say that with a straight face. All right. Um, so um, the first one I wanted to ask you about it poses a question to be answered, which mm -hmm. is, does immigration inhibit reform? Mm -hmm. And so my question to you is, given that you went with a, uh, a pretty straightforward question in your title, yeah. what's the answer? So does it does immigration, immigration with the E, yeah. um, does it inhibit a country's reform? And maybe tell me a little bit about the parameters there. Yeah, sure. So I'll, you know, so the, um, I'll tell you a little bit about sort of why I asked this question and then the answer I find. So, you know, first, um, the reason I asked this question of whether um, emigration, that is to say out-migration, movement mm -hmm. away from a country um, might depress uh, reform is that, um, sometimes we think about um, uh, out-migration in particular, exit in particular, as sort of siphoning off unhappy people who might want change in society or might be dissatisfied with the current status quo in society and having them you know, seek a better situation elsewhere. So this is kind of going back to, um, there's a scholar, uh, Hirschman, who has this classic exit voice and loyalty framework, right? Which, mm -hmm. um, so he's saying that people who are unhappy with their economic or political situation have sort of a couple options at their disposal. They can leave and seek a better situation elsewhere. 
um, where they can stay and try to advocate for change at home. Um, and so one of the things that's interesting about emigration, exit out migration, um, is that people often think of it as a, or talk about it, even the popular press as sort of a pressure valve that's going to sort of release um, unhappiness or discontent in society. And in some cases might think of that as being a good thing. Um, it might sort of uh, increase um, political stability, for example, or re uh, reduce conflict. But um, I sort of marry it with this other literature, which says that um, we only see change happen from pressure from below, whether it's voting or organization or social movement or whatever. Um, and so it's possible that this um, siphoning off of pressure uh, might reduce um, instability, but it might also reduce sort of pressure on the elite or pressure on the government to make reforms. And so, so unhappy people can leave on average easier. They're less likely to stay and push for, for reform because if they can leave to a better uh, home that matches their values, they can just go. Exactly. Whereas if they can't do that, then... then maybe they have some more incentive. That's sort of the basic idea. Um, and so I, I look at this, at a, the context I look at is actually land distribution in Mexico during the 20th century, um, which was, um, Americans don't really think about it, but actually, you know, Mexico uh, really had this uh, transformational land reform program, which took place uh, during the 20th century, where they took land away from, from big estates and transferred it to peasant uh, villages, which had a lot of welfare consequences for, for both actors, you know, the landlords and the, the, the peasantry. So there's a straight up redistribution of land from yep. people who have a lot of it to people who don't. Yeah, and there was a very formalized mechanism through which it took place. Um, and so I just basically look at how this happened and how um, you know, changes in U.S. immigration possibilities changed the pressure that the leaders felt to redistribute land at different times. And I show that during times of open emigration, um, times when it was easier to go to the United States, um, uh, it was less, the people were less likely to advocate for, for um, political, for land redistribution and less likely to get political redistribution in various ways, uh, land redistribution in this case. Um, and places, times when it was actually more difficult, in particular, I look at sort of the time, uh, the Great Depression in the United States, which virtually closed the U.S. economy to, to new migration. Um, suddenly the people are sort of sent back to their country of origin or their region of origin, their village of origin. They, um, in some cases, are able to use some of the skills they've learned in the U.S. in some ways to be really effective at getting land. Um, but then when U.S. migration opportunities open up again, we actually see a depression and activism again. And so, um, so there is sort of evidence that in, in this at least context, there is sort of a, a substitution effect, let's say, between migration and uh, this type of uh, reform, land reform. And, you know, it's sort of interesting to think about some of the consequences for people's lives, right? So how does it affect welfare? And I think that it sort of has sort of ambiguous consequences. So on one hand, I think that uh, out-migration served as a really valuable lifeline for a lot of people um, and a lot of families um, during a time when um, political and economic situation was really bad in Mexico. But it also sort of had this spillover consequence which affected not only those who could migrate, but also many people in society who couldn't. And so part of my research interest is that we think a lot about um, immigrants themselves, but also the, their neighbors sometimes are even um, in more difficult situations. So in a lot of contexts, Mexico included, the poorest of the poor are largely unable to migrate internationally in most of the 20th century. Um, you know, how the migration of their neighbors affects them is a really important consequence. So in this case, the migration, you know, out-migration um, allowed sort of depressed um, instability, but it also, also depressed reform in a way that had um, potentially negative spillover consequences. So um, people who demanded land, who were unable to migrate, sort of weren't able to get their demands met when their neighbors were migrating. So that's really interesting, I think, from a, from a policy or I guess a values uh, question, yeah. which is what's what's the what matters here, right? Is it the 
Um, is it the people in the community who do, who don't have the ability to leave mm -hmm. being arguably harmed at the cultural or societal level by other people who do have the resources to leave mm -hmm. having the option to leave, but it also improves often their life. And yeah, so how so you weight those things is really interesting. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that gets lost a little bit again in this debate um, is that there are migration, just like anything else, is going to have some winners and losers associated with sort of people moving. Um, and I think that sometimes what's lost, especially thinking about some of this work looking at uh, increasing migration to improve development in certain countries, is that there are sometimes some of the losers may actually be some of the poorest people in society in some cases. And that's something that um, sort of that was the, one of the focus questions, I think, of my um, my dissertation work was looking at the ways in which those people might be affected, even if they don't themselves can't migrate. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I, when we get to the sort of talking about policies and what is advantageous in the U.S., I, I want to bring that back up because it's sure, interesting to great. think about who's, uh, whose well-being we should care about that's and how right. to weight those different things, yeah. at least from my opinion, Absolutely, from a morals. I agree. Piece. Okay, so in the, so continuing to move on in the second yeah. paper, uh, uh, so the answer to the first question mm -hmm. is it can, it can. potentially yeah. inhibit reform. Yeah, though I should say one thing, which is that I'm also working on a, a follow-up paper right now um, that shows that you know in some cases, weirdly enough, it can actually make reform even more difficult. Like the um, uh, return migration can actually make reform even more difficult by just causing the breakdown of institutional actors. So there's mm. probably some sort of this is sort of a classic question political economy, right? Which is sort of my um, disciplinary background uh, is, you know, uh, there's probably some ideal amount of pressure you have to provide from below to get reform to happen. Um, too much pressure, I think you can actually get a backlash effect. And so some of the work I'm doing right now, looking at um, land redistribution or a lack of redistribution in Honduras and El Salvador are sort of treating that question too. So it's a little complicated and I think um, you know, the main point is that, of course, it's going to impact the, the government's um, incentives to provide reform, which is going to have welfare consequences yeah. um, across the board. Well, that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> I want to come back to that. Sure, yeah. um, in the second paper, you state in your abstract, and I'm quoting you here, sure. which is, you say, I show that while immigration increases the wealth of sending households and communities, the relationship between migration and public service is ambiguous, which is sort of what you're alluding to just a moment ago, I believe. Mm -hmm. And you say, I present some empirical evidence that the positive wealth impacts of migration might be offset by its adverse impacts on community governance. And so this is sort of still asking the same type of question, which is, at least as I understand it, people who are able to migrate are better off in lots of contexts and able to send money back to their to their family members and people in that community, but it has some weird effects on the actual governance and the institutions in there. So mm -hmm. unpack that a little bit for me. Sure. I mean, I think this question, this paper um, was sort of more of a very basic question I was trying to answer, a really basic policy, actually, question I was trying to answer, which is um, a lot of the reasons why, a lot of the policy um, arguments about labor migration, particularly from developing countries, are that it's going to have this sort of positive spillover consequence that you allow people to leave They'll send back remittances, um, the money that people earn abroad, and then send back to their families, households, uh, friends um, in their origin area. And this potentially will have positive spillover effects on the other households in the community, for example, because they're going to buy um, uh, local products or because mm -hmm. they're just sort of have an influx of money in the economy. 
one of the mechanisms through which they think it's going to affect um, people's welfare is through public service provision. And so um, that is to say access to things like uh, water sources, sewage, um, and so forth. Does that include education and health types? So um, this particular paper looks only at sort of uh, basic social infrastructure, which okay. is just um, water, sewage, roads, and so on. Um, in a follow-up paper I'm working on with um, Clinic Cortez and in your department, mm-hmm. we're looking at uh, education in particular. Um, but uh, so we sort of, uh, you know, you, you think that sort of the potential would be for, for this um, positive um, inflow of resources, the outflow of people, and therefore the inflow of uh, resources from abroad maybe would improve public service provision. Um, but I should that... Because the, re- the, the logical reasoning there is that it brings more money into the community. Exactly. That's more tax revenue. Sure. More, more money, more goods. tax revenue, maybe more uh, time for people who are getting this money to advocate for public service provision and so forth. Um, we typically think that wealthier households are more able to take advantage of the political process, for example, mm-hmm. in many contexts. Um, and so I showed that sort of in line with this sort of argument, um, places uh, and households that have migrants abroad do end up wealthier because they end up having this influx of resources and, and communities of you know, outgoing migration do sort of increase in their wealth. But also that doesn't necessarily translate into better public services. And one other thing I find is that those communities tend to have fewer, say, community meetings and less participation in community meetings, in part maybe because of this effective absence. People aren't there um, to take advantage or to try to uh, work together to, to solve problems. But also potentially, you know, one sort of piece of evidence we have is that there's some at least sort of private spending on products that might substitute for these public services. And so some of these households maybe get their needs met through other mechanisms and are maybe less likely to um, to participate in community meetings and so forth. So. Um, so in, in total, maybe these two effects, you know, I find basically no increased public service provision. Not, it's not lower either. It's sort of, you can't really, um, it, you know, it's basically unchanged relative to um, when, once you, you know, control for important things and, you know, um, and so on. And so, you know, uh, sort of one possibility is these things are sort of counteracting. So you mm-hmm. have more uh, wealth, which potentially increases your ability to demand better public services. But it also might reduce your willingness or your desire to because you can get your needs met through other um, means. And if, you know, there are other sort of effects on social capital or community organization, then maybe that will also hurt public service provision. It's really interesting. So um, when you talk about it, I didn't pick up on what I was reading, but when, I talk, when you're talking about it, I pick up on the clear tension between individual interests and collective interests. Yeah, I think that's And right. how migration patterns might affect the individual who's migrating mm-hmm. or immigrating and uh, how that affects the community either they're from mm-hmm. or going to. And there's, it seems like, at least in these examples, there's some tension there where what's good for the individual or the individual household maybe isn't necessarily good for the community always. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, um, I think that in some cases there is a tension uh, there. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that um, we should resist, um, you know, the, the um, we should resist the um, inclination to think of things as being sort of unambiguously good or bad, um, uh, you know, whether it's migration or remittances or whatever. I think that there are definitely um, some uh, mixed effects. And I think certain people benefit and certain people don't. Yeah. This is something I think that gets lost, too, in the in the political debate, or at least in terms how it, of how it's characterized, mm-hmm. right? There's often people saying either things like, no, we want as much immigration as possible because mm-hmm. that's a human rights right. thing. And another side saying, no, this is a security issue. Mm-hmm. We have to limit and reduce um, immigration. But it seems to me that there are it kind of like uh, sort of the 
classic example of the Laffer curve, which yeah. is like taxes can be so high that it's not, uh, that has disincentives sure, to work. To right. And so in this way, I think it, it seems to me that the, the rational conversation is how much immigration mm-hmm. can a society or community yeah. stand and um, what in, in what types of ways, right? As we've talked about, it affects different markets differently. Um, and so it seems like the real question that needs to be asked is it is what is the right level of immigration mm-hmm. balancing sort of population growth, maybe some human rights concerns against uh, border security and security for the native population yeah. seems to be what should be the real conversation here. Yeah, I think that sort of talking about the levels, but also I think one important thing is I think we should think about how we uh, uh, compensate losers from various economic policies and how we can maybe transfer some of the gains that are caused by, by immigration um, and, uh, you know, to, to certain individuals and think about how we can share those among the people who might be less well off. I think that's true on both sides of the, of the population movement. It's interesting that you, uh, that you say that way. The couple episodes ago, um, I talked with Raymond Robertson, who's also oh, one of yeah. our colleagues, <laughs> and we talked about free trade mm-hmm. and he was making the same argument that free trade is good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has winners and it has losers. Absolutely. And if you don't take the time to compensate those that have lost from free trade, you end up with some of the concerns that we have now. And this also is, I mean, I, it seems like a clear parallel to Absolutely. understanding immigration, right? Absolutely. If there are, if there are industries that negative, that are negatively impacted by, um, uh, economic migrants, and it seems reasonable to try to compensate those people. Absolutely, or households. I mean, I think that there are certain segments of society that benefit and certain that don't, and I think that um, that's a huge uh, social issue, and, and actually, I think a lot of the political debate over migration is related to some of those those issues and concerns. So the, the idea of there being tension between sort of the collective society mm-hmm. and the individual, I think you highlight in this, in your third paper, yeah. Um, and so I think this is a nice segue, and we've kind of talked about this already, but your third paper is Immigration and Collective Action. And this is where you sort of more formalize, I think, your argument about these exit options and what that means for political mobilization. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, this is the paper, sort of a departure from the other two papers in that it's a theory paper. It's not really empirical, um, though I have some sort of um, historical research I do as part of the paper, too. Um, but the thing I was trying to answer, the, the question I was trying to answer in this paper is, you know, how does not just migration, it's actually not even migration that model, it's how does providing someone with the possibility of migration influence their choices, but also the choices of everyone around them. So I th- sort of think of a setting where people might be unhappy with some sort of situation, um, and then if enough of them mobilize, then that situation gets changed. Mm-hmm. It's really a really stylized example. We can think of a lot of things that might be that reform or that policy change, even sort of maybe thinking about in a, you know, certain settings, you know, change of leadership or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I first think of a situation where, you know, they are in a, they are in a, a context where maybe deciding to mobilize might be sort of uh, costly and risky, mm-hmm. takes some amount of time you have to invest in the movement, and maybe it's not clear if it's going to be successful. So almost all policy changes start this way. Let's say I'm unhappy with my public school, I'm a parent, and I want to, um, change the situation of public school for my kid. Um, maybe uh, it's costly to start going to a lot of these meetings. Maybe it's not clear if there's anything to change about this, but maybe if enough of us do this together, we can get some sort of policy change. And so that's sort of the setting I look at. And then I sort of provide some subset of people, some a group of people of, of the population. I say, okay, well, those people can migrate and other ones can't. 
And I basically show a few different things with this sort of basic theoretical model. One is that um, just even the knowledge that your neighbors may migrate, even if you're not a migrant yourself or not, you couldn't, you have no migration options. The knowledge that some people might choose to leave a situation affects your ability to, or your desire to uh, start to organize because it's a risky thing you're trying to do. Um, and that can make some people worse off. Um, you know, I also show that um, paradoxically, I think there are some situations under which those who can migrate themselves might be made worse off by the introduction of these exit options because it undermines confidence in collective action, which makes it less likely that maybe a policy change is likely to occur. So think of a situation where maybe my first best choice is to get a better public school in my district. And my second best choice is to send my, uh, my child to a private school. Maybe even just having that option can depress my, my uh, perceived confidence in being able to change my public school, um, which can have negative consequences, mm -hmm. even for me, you know, even if I'm the one who can migrate or to, in this case, exit. Um, so, you know, we asked, I think one of the things that, um, you know, you were asking earlier is like, what are, what, are, what are exit options really? And so in this paper, I'm thinking of emigration as the classic exit option. It's that I can, if I'm happy with my government or my economic or political situation, I can leave and seek a better situation elsewhere. Um, but I think there are a lot of things that we can think of as exit options, whether it's, um, uh, choosing, you know, to send your child to a private school or a charter school or, or something like this rather than the public school in your in your district, um, whether it's uh, choosing to not use public water, um, instead, you know, start buying private water or bottled water for your house, um, as opposed to trying to uh, advocate for getting sort of better water quality locally, virtually anything that's going to be um, sort of a replacement for some sort of collective good that you might be interested in, in mobilizing for. So in this sort of a theoretical paper, um, but one thing it highlights is some of the ambiguous welfare consequences of, of, uh, of emigration. In this case, emigration is a choice in the model. It's not actually the, um, it, it, I don't force anyone to, <laughs> to migrate in the model. It's sort of just saying, if you're allowed to migrate, even just having the option there can change your behavior. Um, and it changes therefore your neighbor's behavior in a situation where you need to cooperate with them to get some sort of change. Yeah. Um, so it has to, again, it has the consequences that are spread, not just for the individual, but spillover effects for the community, Absolutely. kind of externalities Absolutely. in that way. And because of those externalities, weirdly enough, actually kind of feeds back into the individual in various ways. So even, again, an individual who might be able to, uh, who, you know, has the option of choosing to leave or not, might choose to leave simply knowing that other people in their society are going to choose to leave or not um, has spillover consequences, which affects whether they're willing to, to mobilize, especially when this is costly or risky. And, you know, I think going to a PTA meeting maybe doesn't sound so, I mean, it is, takes people's time. Um, maybe it doesn't sound so risky, but if you think of it even more broadly to a, like an authoritarian context where maybe you need to figure out whether or not to participate in some sort of social movement to demand better rights or something, um, or even in this context, I think that those things can, can sometimes have, negative consequences for, you know, your workplace, for your social life. Um, uh, choosing whether to mobilize is often very um, risky and very costly. So um, I'll ask you a loaded question, sure. which is, does this, then what is counterweighting then, um, let's try again. So does, does your work then say that we should limit out migration to help protect local communities and local civic institutions. I mean, is that the <laughs> is that the natural conclusion of this? And if so, what does that mean? Or if not, what are the other factors that we need to be considering? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that it would be uh, clearly wrong to say that we shouldn't allow exit. I think that in many contexts, um, 
exit, the ability to leave some situation is kind of rightly seen as a human right. So if I'm really unhappy with um, yeah, my situation, you know, it's not on me necessarily to have to change my community. Um, um, it's not on me to have to suffer to try to transform society. In fact, this is something that people often say with respect to a lot of the um, immigration in the U.S. It's like, oh, they should just go back and change their own country. Well, that can be really costly. It's really uncertain. In some ways, it's unfair to put the burden of that on a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I would say that what my research calls attention to um, is just some of the potentially negative spillover effects that this has um, and thinking carefully about um, who's likely to win, who's likely to lose, and some of the distributive consequences of allowing for open immigration. I think that's sort of the key thing that I'm I'm interested in. And again, my context I look at is the places people leave from, but we can think of echoes of this in places where they go to. Um, mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And then I want to... And maybe we can sort of shift to the U.S. context That's particularly. So you're looking at out what out of uh, out migration from Mexico, particularly to the U.S., has mm-hmm. been doing to some of the communities in Mexico, mm-hmm. and then theoretically what it might do as well. Uh, but we haven't talked about because it's not really necessarily your area of expertise. <laughs> but I'm going to push you a little bit. Sure, Anything absolutely. you don't feel comfortable sort of asserting, just let me know. Okay, sounds good. Uh, but to your point, right, there are consequences, both positive and negative, to the U.S. for allowing in migrants, whether they mm-hmm. be economic migrants or political migrants or refugees. And so what are some of the, in the U.S. context in particular, what are some of the empirical, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, benefits in some empirical or theoretical on both sides uh, drawbacks and what are we actually looking at when we're debating about how many people to to let in immigrate into the u.s maybe specifically from mexico Mm -hmm. what are the actual parameters around how it impacts us as a society yeah i mean i think a lot of ways so let's say you know uh, i guess i'll take first a really narrow view and think first about sort of direct effects on um uh, of migration on people in the U.S. already, um, and then think about some of the ways in which some of the social uh, and political consequences of migration, or even out migration, other contexts might spill over and affect the U.S. and sort of a, a dynamic feedback mechanism. Um, so first, of course, some of the things we talked about already um, about thinking about um, it certainly affects uh, the economy um, in certain different areas. I think both in positive and negative ways in some cases, but um, I think in a more complicated manner than is often assessed. Um, it changes um, the demand for labor of different kinds. It changes the supply of labor of different kinds. Um, uh, it changes uh, wages, industry. Eventually, these things all adjust. Um, has feedback um, effects on the public finance, um, who uses different social programs, who sends their children to different schools, but also what the tax base looks like in a, in a, in a region, which. Um, again, the immigrants often do pay taxes, and not only that, but certainly spillover effects of having um, uh, more labor in the economy can have positive effects on, on labor in various, on, 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 sorry, tax revenue in various ways. Um, so, you know, all of these things can affect, um, can affect, have direct effects on, um, on people who are already living in the United States, and, and, and some uh, are helped and some are hurt by these different effects. Um, I think that's um, certainly true. I think that um, it's sort of less of a clear-cut hurting labor than is often argued in, in, um, uh, in say, the popular press, and less of a clear-cut helping um, high-skilled immig- uh, uh, people, as, as sometimes argued. I think it's sort of these things all have sort of cross-cutting effects. But one of the things that I think my um, research does kind of call attention to is that, you know, if we care about something like social and political stability in Mexico or what's going on in our, some of our neighboring countries, then migration also has some spillover effects 
in the sending, the migrant sending areas that may actually affect American interests. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think a classic example would be, um, that I look at in my, uh, the, the first paper we mentioned today is this land reform program, which ended up sort of affecting some American owned farms as well as, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and, you know, in general, some of this mobilization related to like the nationalization of the oil industry, I think is not unrelated to some of these, you know, migration shocks. I think that um, you know more broadly speaking, uh, we can think about you know uh, what it does to future migration, but also sort of just future political stability in the Americas for having um, sort of differences in poverty and um, differences in uh, grievances, violence, and so on in, in um, our neighboring countries, and not just there. I mean, think in a lot of places in the world. So, I think that. Um, we uh, sometimes ignore the spillover consequences of migration policy at our peril. I think that, um, you know, in some ways, uh, sort of destabilizing our southern border is not going to serve American interests either. Um, uh, so even taking a very, very narrow definition of American interest, um, I think that um, it's sort of a complicated uh, question. It seems like, too, one thing that... Uh that you didn't mention that I think is important is the uh-huh. cultural impacts as well. Sure, yeah. But it does... Um, if you have a large influx of, um, say, for example, uh, Hispanic Catholics, right? Yeah. The the culture around being Hispanic and being Catholic is probably different than, uh, say, some of the communities here in rural parts of Texas, Absolutely. right? And so that has an impact on the way in which people view their community, the way in which yes, they perceive it. And so I think there are also, this is some of the debate you hear with what is the appropriate amount of refugees, for example, yeah. which we haven't talked about as much, but right. it's it's an active debate in Europe, mm-hmm. which is given that uh, the refugees coming into the refugees, the people fleeing, for example, Syria mm-hmm. are in general um, um, are in general uh, Muslim Syrians, right? right? And their culture is often different than the countries to which they're fleeing to. We'll say Germany is kind of the sure. one that gets talked about. And so it is an important consideration to think about at some level, uh, what are the and stability, mm-hmm. I think is the, the way in which you talked about this, but at some point it, it can undermine not just the political stability of the country people are fleeing, mm-hmm. but large, um, un, uh, large and large amounts of say, political refugees does have cultural impacts or on the receivership. Yeah, definitely economic yeah. Yeah, and economic migrants yeah. as well because their cultures are different, right? Sure. And I think that explains some of the, or at least some of the, uh, helps shed some light on the conversation in the U.S. right now under refugees as immigrants is the fear. I mean, the numbers in the U.S. are so small comparatively to, say, Germany as sure, a percentage of the population yeah. that I think it's hard to make the argument that it's going to Yeah, I think there are some, but I certainly think these cultural arguments are part of why some people feel um, really aggrieved about mm-hmm. um, um, immigration. Um, one of the things I always think is really funny, um, you know, from some of my, my field work is the extent to which we see a weird echo of this um, in, in Mexico, too. Um, both people who have been in the U.S. coming back. Um, I remember, you know, in one community I was in, in the Mexican state of Oaxaca, which is in the south, um, one of the people talking to me about how, you know, they don't like all these kids come back, you know, from the U.S. with their different music, different clothes, different haircuts. And so this sort of like, you know, also a cultural aggrievement about the migration process that, you know, on the other side. Um, and also sort of just all over the world, I think, even in, in Mexico, people talk about the Central American migrants in this way, too. Mm-hmm. They have sort of different clothing and 
um, talk diff somewhat differently, different food and so forth. I think that that does um, play a role in how people think about these things. And I think that, you know, there are some people that, you know, these things matter, um, you know, that, that they, people do feel aggrieved in various ways about, about this. Um, uh, I think that said, you know, one of the things that's interesting about, say, Texas, as opposed to a lot of the U.S., is people might feel, you know, I think people who have exposure to these communities actually feel somewhat um, maybe less aggrieved sometimes than those who don't have exposure. So it's sort of interesting to think about. I think some of it's also just un un uncertainty, fear, and and so forth, which is... Yeah, just an interesting piece of it that I think gets missed. Um, so I, I care a lot about human rights. I care mm -hmm. a lot about trying to increase the overall quality of life for people, for people <laughs> right? Right. And you want it to do that, not harm it. Right. Right. And I do think, whereas I think often... Um, conservatives may play up too much the border security mm -hmm. concerns coming across, particularly from the Mexican border, although there are certainly um, issues there. Mm -hmm. I think liberals often mm -hmm. downplay yeah. um, the fact that there is real consequences to sure. migration to and from, which is one of the things I liked about your work. It mm -hmm. highlights that, you know, out migration from a community even in pursuit of better opportunities has consequences for the betterment of opportunities in that community sure. that people are leaving. Yeah. And whereas if you bring in a large influence of people into your country that don't share, say, democratic values, mm -hmm. for example, that would potentially harm the democratic norms in that country. Sure. And so both of these pieces, I think, need to be talked about openly in honest discussions yeah. about immigration. I think that's true. And I think it kind of goes back to this point too, where I think it becomes really easy um, to sort of generalize and say things are good or bad without thinking about assessing, you know, who's likely to win, who's likely to lose from various things. And um, I think especially among, you know, certain segments of the population, um, you know, we uh, downplay sort of how uh, not just migration, but a lot of these things are just have, you know, at the local level have, really um, destabilizing, I guess it's kind of over dramatic, but they have sort of, um, it, it sort of is uh, a change that is disruptive. Um, and so those things have, um, they cause stress. Um, I think they cause unhappiness, I think on, on both sides. And I think it's true of immigrants and receiving communities and of sending communities. So um, any sort of change, you know, whether it's immigration or trade or whatever, it's sort of a movement of resources It's uh, and people, it's gonna have um, sort of disruptive effects in various ways yeah so we are we've blown past the hour mark and so in um in an attempt to bring things to uh to a close um so what, do you, what do you think this means for the debate in the u.s about uh immigration between u.s and mexico i mean what is i stay really frustrated with discussing this topic in in, in other forms um, because it, it quickly devolves into this conversation about, um, well, these people, um, like for example, undocumented or illegal mm -hmm. folks, which is a, the large, a large percentage of that are Mexican immigrants. Um, the responses often end up being either, well, we should just make them citizens mm -hmm. because they're here and that brings them into the fold. And yes, they, uh, broke some rules or didn't follow the proper procedures, but they're here. And so let's just naturalize them or make them citizens all the way to um, sort of what the president was advocating mm -hmm. on the campaign trail and sort of echoes of it now, which is 
Um, we need to physically remove these people from our society if they uh, don't have the appropriate paperwork or haven't gone mm-hmm. through the appropriate uh, uh, procedures to keep their paperwork current. So those seem a little extreme to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what's a reasonable progress or process moving forward that people who are listening to this that care about good immigration policy uh, and you could talk about in terms of values and mm-hmm. trade-offs, but w- w- there's got to be more choices than that. And so what are the, what are the choices for addressing this particular uh, issue with immigration, particularly in the U.S.? Yeah, I, mean, I think that um, so there's sort of two separate issues. So, And I guess they relate to this distinction you uh, made at the, the top of the hour on difference between stocks and flows. Mm-hmm. You know, and people who are here now... Um, there are tens of millions, you know, 11 million alone uh, Mexicans in the U.S., of which, you know, um, you know, a large, um, uh, but not majority, but a large portion are, are not documented. But also there's a lot of, you know, tens of millions of people that might be affected by various um, policies that involve um, those who are living here without proper authorization. I think that, um, you know, discussing these things bleed over, but there's one question is what to do with this large population that exists in the U.S. and has lived here sometimes for a long period of time. Um, uh, and in, in some cases, like the you know the dreamers, people talk about a lot. Maybe don't even remember another country of um, of origin. Um, you know, versus you know how do we shape migration policy going forward in terms of the flows of people from different countries to the U.S. Whether it's refugees, economic migrants, um, people from different continents, areas, a different composition of the workforce, and so on. And there are sort of a lot more. Um, there are a lot more choices than sort of crack down and send everyone back or block the borders or let everyone come in. I think that a lot of countries have dealt with this. It's a very difficult issue for various reasons to deal with. But um, one thing I think that gets lost in the debate is that um, a lot of these uh, sort of uh, choices that we make um, can have uh, sort of spillover consequences that might sort of counteract them. So I'll give a really brief example, which is um, uh, work on the, on the border, right? So how, how does border security affect the undocumented migration in the U.S.? Um, and so I think that one of the works that a lot of sociologists, Douglas Massey's a key one, has shown is that sort of the crackdown in border security in the 80s and 90s in the U.S. had this unanticipated consequence of actually raising the population of people who were living here semi-permanently um, without papers. So I think that um, you know, you know, proper authorization of various kinds um, by making it really difficult to move across the border. Those people were essentially, once they come here, trapped. Um, and so we actually see this, you know, some of my work, I even see this during the financial crisis in 2008. So um, if it had been easy to cross the border, I think a lot of these Central American and Mexican migrants, especially Mexican migrants, may have decided to go home during that time period when the U.S. economy was struggling. Instead, they stay here, um, you know, taking advantage of um, the fact that they're already here and not wanting to have to pay um, to, to have to cross the border again. So, um, you know, one thing I think we forget is that there are sometimes we think through not just the intended effect of the policy, but maybe some of the unintended consequences that it might uh, result. If we think about understanding why people are leaving and why people are going somewhere, we can sort of design a more intelligent migration policy. And I think the next thing that is missing from the current immigration debate is um, this issue of sort of distributive consequences and how we um, balance uh, this desire to allow people who are entrepreneurial, maybe in some cases, um, or who are fleeing in some cases from um, really terrible economic, political, social situations, take advantage of being in the United States and bring their human capital here, which is, you know, helps some parts of our economy. Um, uh, how do we balance that against some of these people who feel 
uh, the pain of, of uh, some of the negative consequences of migration. I think that we've sort of lacked imagination in thinking about these things as being um, clear cut. You know, either it's sort of unambiguously good or unambiguously bad when really some people are likely to win and some are likely to lose. And so the key question is how we balance these different things. Um, and that's sort of lost in the, the debate right now, I think. Um, in particular, it's sort of um, difficult to even inject some basic um, facts into this debate sometimes about you know what we know about um, immigration wages. And it's sort of unsatisfying, but it's actually more ambiguous than I think a lot of people think. And what we know about um, uh, uh, things like um, different types of visa balances and how that's going to affect migration is, I think, more ambiguous than, than other people would think. Um, and so it's sort of a, a sticky policy problem, um, but a, a really crucial one for us to solve, I think, um, not just in terms of Americans, but also just in terms of, I think, as you pointed out, human rights across the world. I think especially with this um, you know, refugee issue, we have to think about, um, you know, how we balance uh, maybe some of the the costs of absorbing these people with you know the the, the benefit of getting people out of um, uh, you know settled into situations and you know, when they're um, sort of not able to go back to their area of origin and so forth. So I think these are all sort of sticky questions. Yeah, the secondary and tertiary uh, tertiary effects I think are are, are really what's missing, um, mm-hmm. and and I, and I think that part of it is a, a general lack of understanding or giving full weight to how things are implemented mm-hmm. yeah, um, I think that's right. and so that's where some of the my concerns other than humanitarian right. ones with the current immigration debates and, and particularly what to do with to use the the stock versus flow the stock of right. people that are already here right um and <clears throat> the secondary and tertiary effects of physically removing those people from society um seems to just be way underweighted in the discussion, right? At least on from the president's standpoint, right? It yeah. seems to be no recognition whether or not that ends up being a policy you want to stick with. There doesn't need to be any recognition of the costs that go into just the enforcement cost of removing people from their homes, not to mention humanitarian ones like children that weren't part of this process mm-hmm. being removed from education mm-hmm. and being put back into a community they don't know. Right. It seems to me there has to be some other process for physically removing people who aren't uh, don't have the proper documentation or that are here illegally, you know, however you want to frame there it. There are millions of people. These are millions and uh, millions of people. And, and um, I think one of the um, things that's also lost in the debate is that um, sort of this, uh, many of the people who are here, undocumented individuals, have American citizen family members, you know, so this is, in even if you have a very, very narrow view of humanitarian concerns and only care about Americans, like these are, these are concerns that are going to affect American citizens, but also the sort of police operations necessary to expel people often require um, massive enforcement that's going to pick up Americans, too, and particular types of Americans are likely to be um, suspect. I mean, there have been already cases here in Texas. There's a case of someone, an American citizen, who was detained for over a year, um, uh, being unable to show um, his citizenship at a checkpoint, um, and then you know, sort of took a long time for people to be able to, um, to you know, figure out that something had gone wrong. Um, there's a, a clear-cut case of where an American citizen, you know, even again taking a very narrow view of humanitarian concerns, was was brought up. And I think that um, you know, the thing about the you know how to deal with the undocumented population in the U.S. is a very difficult question, which is why it's been going for so long without really being um, addressed. I think the last big, I mean, there were the, the big amnesty in, in the 80s, 
um, this sort of, you know, uh, deal that was made about uh, providing amnesty to those who had come prior um, in exchange for some border security. People are talking about various visions of that, but um, but I think one of the reasons we haven't seen it is because um, it's it's a really thorny issue of figuring out what to do here. Because I think some people think that if you were just to sort of uh, wholesale give everyone citizenship, then that would encourage further mm-hmm. immigration, um, undocumented immigration. Um, uh, others who think, you know, clearly we can't just put millions of people on trains and bring them back. I mean, that's something hundreds of thousands of people were expelled from the United States at various points in time. You know, think the 1930s, for example, um, sent back to Mexico. Um, but it's sort of, I think that um, what's lost is the sort of law enforcement um, action alone would, would be extremely costly in terms of money, but also in terms of um, uh, the way it would affect American citizens. Um, uh, on a daily basis. So that's sort of something to consider as well, I think. All right. Well, we are, I think, now at the hour 20 mark. We <laughs> didn't resolve all the questions, um, but I think hopefully this gives people um, some different pieces of information to think about with the immigration debate, which is the goal of these episodes uh, of this podcast is to uh, at least get people thinking about some of the relevant parameters, which I think um, in the political debates, um because they often spill off into teams, people are too busy um, focusing on the couple of parameters that their team is yelling about, yeah. um, whether it's just border security or just the undocumented uh, population. And so I hope this um, helps give people at least some additional information on the parameters here. Um, when I wrap up these interviews, Emily, I'd like to give the guest an opportunity to share any contact info a website or social media where people that are interested in your work could follow along. So is there anything like that that you would like to share? Sure. I mean, if you want to um, uh, read more about my work, um, you can uh, find me on uh, emilysellers.com is my uh, personal website. Um, and then via the, the Bush School of Government, my faculty page has a link to uh, my contact information and, uh, and uh, more information about my research. Excellent. Anything else you'd like to say? No, thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much for coming. This was really enjoyable. We'll have to do it again sometime. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Problems. These episodes can be found on iTunes Podcast, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, and Pocket Casts, along with on our YouTube channel at Public Problems. You can find these episodes on any of these mediums by simply searching for Public Problems. We also are maintaining a Facebook page. It's at Public Problems Podcast. Here we are sharing more information about the podcasts and having a little bit of a discussion on current topics. We'll also be hosting an event in January called Public Problems 101, a January review of the evidence. This will be a public classroom learning experience that you can participate in. Simply find the event on our Facebook page and click that you're interested in participating. More information on that will be forthcoming in the next couple of months. Thanks again for your time and we hope that you're enjoying the podcast. Have a nice day.